Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is the nation's leading North Korea expert, Bruce Klingner of the Heritage Foundation, who started his career analyzing the hermit dictatorship at the CIA. He is also a man who has long joked that sadly he's got a lot of job security in this business. Bruce, thanks so very much for joining us, and it's great to have you on the program. Well, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Bruce, North Korea is consistently a re regional provocateur and uh, belligerent, uh, even when they're being uh, left alone. Uh, there's internal dynamics to look at, which are absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, whether Kim is sick or why his sister is playing a bigger role or wow, his daughter uh, is, is on the ascendancy, even though she's 14 years old. Um, then there are the periodic rocket missile uh, nuclear tests or nuclear tests that we expected and didn't happen, artillery fire. Uh, and all of this, you know, sort of strains how Washington and its allies should uh, respond, right, to not encourage bad behavior. You, you've always pointed out, whenever the North Koreans figure out how to get a rise out of you, they'll just do that more, the more attention uh, you pay to them. It's now very soon, the 70th anniversary of the armistice that halted the Korean War. As, as a starter, where are we? Because folks have a tendency of looking at some of the things coming out of Pyongyang and seeing it as sort of disjointed, as opposed to actually having its own focus. How, how is the threat posed by Kim on this 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War different from maybe his predecessors? What we've seen under Kim Jong-un is a much greater willingness uh, to push forward on the, the, particularly the missile programs. Uh, and accept defeat as a price of success. And by that, I mean, when Kim Jong-il, the father, was a leader, uh, you know, clearly the missile programs were more in their infancy, but when they had a, a failed launch, it would be quite a long time before they risked having another one. And we had reports that uh, the scientists were punished, perhaps permanently. Um, under Kim Jong-un, what we've seen is missiles that have been, uh, you know, unsuccessful, you know, they, they try again fairly quickly. And apparently he'll, he's reassured his scientists that you don't go to the gulag for a failed test. So, you know, in 2017, we had six launches of an intermediate range missile called the Hwasong-12. Three of them had been failures and then three successes. So, you know, we've just had this rapid fire uh, launching of missiles, even when they have had some failures, but then they go on to have successes. So right now, uh, it's sort of a dizzying array of missile systems that they have for all ranges that can hit the American homeland, can hit our bases in Hawaii and Guam, as well as all of Japan and all of South Korea. And uh, sometimes a, a new missile will replace an old one. There were earlier ICBMs that were paraded, the Hwasong 8 and 13, which were never launched. Uh, and then a later one that that was launched, the, the 14. And then that one we haven't seen because it's been replaced by yet newer missiles. So all of these cumulatively have increased the threat to the United States and our allies. The, the systems are, they're more mobile, they're more reliable, they're more accurate. 
Some even have a capability of evading missile defenses. So, you know, all of this has increased the, the threat, and yet it's getting less attention, at least in the media, than it used to, like back in 2017. And so kind of the, this growing North Korean threat is overshadowed by the, the China threat, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and, and before that, the 2020 election and January 6th, et cetera. So there's always something that seems to push North Korea off the front pages, even though the threat is becoming quite dire. Uh, but it takes something you know, seemingly ridiculous, like this uh, army private running across the DMZ to bring attention back to North Korea, even though that's much less of a story than the growing threat. Uh, in, in, indeed, and a little bit of frustration in the uh, administration, I think, even in the Pentagon that, hey, you know, we're we're trying to do all, a whole bunch of subtle things to reassure uh, uh, our South Korean ally while also mes messaging to the North uh, Koreans, for example, uh, the guided missile uh, submarine USS Michigan visited Busan uh, in in June. And, and somehow, you know, this is what sort of over overshadows how how much bigger a threat. Right. I mean, historically. Historically, North Korea could always be dismissed as sort of, you know, more of a problem for South Korea, certainly, and as well for Japan, but not really a continental threat, even though we did build uh, ballistic missile defenses for that purpose. How much more of a significant threat, Bruce, is North Korea to the United States, right? I mean, it, it's clearly a, a threat to Japan, but how much more of a threat is it tangibly to the United States, given their nuclear miniaturization programs? And as you said, right, they just tested a, a solid rocket ICBM, right? It's not liquid-fueled rockets anymore that we would have a lot of warning or more warning before launch. Right. Well, people, I think some still tend to have this idea of, you know, North Korea is this silly little country, uh, very technically backwards. Oh, they couldn't possibly do fill in the blank, you know, very sophisticated cyber attacks, ICBMs, nuclear weapons, etc. Uh, so a lot of times when people do focus on North Korea, it's it's still with some of the caricature that we've seen before, you know, the, the whining baby with nuclear weapons as toys, etc. Um, but the threat, including to the American homeland, has continued to grow. Back in 2017, they launched three ICBMs, and they lofted them, uh, sent them on a very lofted trajectory so that they didn't fly over Japan. Um, but if you did the math, it showed that the first uh, missile, the 14, uh, could reach about half of the continental United States, and then two launches by the Hwasong 15 could reach all, the, all of the continental U.S., down to Florida and beyond. So back in 2017, we knew that they had at least sort of a nascent ability to hit the continental United States. Um, since then, we've seen the continued testing of, of the missiles and likely deployment of the 15. And then uh, later we saw the parading and then successful test launching of the Hwasong 17, which people have referred to as the monster uh, ICBM. It's the world's largest road mobile ICBM. It's on a transporter erector launcher that has 11 axles. Uh, and it's likely uh, to have three or four nuclear warheads. That, and also during that same parade, North Korea uh, displayed that they can now make themselves these very large transporters. Up until then, they had been limited to eight logging trucks that they had bought from China, which 
they repurpose from transporting very large logs to very large missiles. Uh, by being able to send out multi-warhead ICBMs out into the field on more launchers, it risks overwhelming the limited number of U.S. missile defenses we have. We have 44 ground-based interceptors in Alaska and California. We've said we may we will fire multiple, perhaps up to four missiles at each incoming warhead or missile. So you do the math. You know maybe we can only defend against 11 incoming warheads. You know it, at a recent parade they displayed 12 of the multi-warhead Vostok 17 plus four more of a new solid fuel ICBM, the 18. So perhaps they have more uh, warheads or missiles that could overwhelm. Our limited missile defenses. So, you know, it, it's getting quite concerning. And then, you know, how many nuclear weapons do they have? We don't know. I'm sure even in the intelligence community, it's difficult to come up with an assessment. But I was part of a RAND Corporation study, and we estimated that they could have 200 nuclear warheads by 2027. At what point, Bruce, do we just have to acknowledge that we're dealing with a nuclear power? And once you get admitted to the nuclear club, there are rules uh, about the nuclear club, right? I mean, why is Vladimir Putin? You don't talk about flight club. Uh, and at the end of the day, you also understand you're targeted, right? I mean, that solves, in fact, the Iran problem as well. Go ahead, become a nuclear power. But Israel has the capacity to annihilate your, your nation at that point, right? The North Koreans could have 200 weapons. We still have overmatch uh, on that, right? If you want to pick a fight with the biggest guy in the block, you could get clobbered and get turned into a glass parking lot. I'm not saying that you know, we wouldn't muss our hair and I'm not trying to sound like uh, alarmist in this, right? At the end of the day, that's where throw weight kind of comes into effect in a deterrent calculus. At, at what point do we just need to acknowledge it is a nuclear state, we're gonna treat it like a nuclear state. Here are the rules of the road, Kim, go ahead, threaten all you want, but you take one move against us and that's gonna be the last move you make ever. Right. Well, there's a lot going on there. So kind of politically or diplomatically, uh, there may be a difference, and it is more than wordsmithing, between acknowledging, accepting, or assessing. And by that, I mean, you know, back in the 1990s, when I was in the intelligence community, we assessed that they had a limited number of nuclear weapons. Now, were they a nuclear state then, or was it only after their first test, or when they had a deliverable warhead, etc.? So, you know, it, it's to me, kind of, you, you can't accept or acknowledge them officially because that undermines the non-proliferation treaty. It, it undermines the 11 UN resolutions against North Korea, et cetera. But you can't deny that they have the capability. So you, you don't accept them. Uh, you have to maintain denuclearization as your, your diplomatic end goal, even if you don't think you'll achieve it. Uh, but you have to assess that they have nuclear weapons. It, it's sort of like, you know, a policeman looking in the window of a hostage situation sees the, the criminal with a, a pistol. Well, he doesn't accept that as be legal behavior, uh, but he does have to assess that he does have a, a dangerous weapon. So we've known for quite some time, and people will debate what, you know, at what point they crossed certain red lines. Uh, we do know they have nuclear weapons, they can deliver them against the U.S. and its allies. But we still try to have denuclearization as our end goal because it, it provides the legal means for a number of the, the sanctions by the UN and the US. So, um, you know, we do know that they have an ever-growing number of, of weapons. So 
experts and officials will debate, do we abandon denuclearization as an end goal? Do we try to have arms control treaties instead? You know, kind of a lot of debate, which is, at this point is moot because North Korea has refused any kind of dialogue, let alone negotiations since 2019. So what we now are doing is as we wait by the phone for them to ever deign to, to have a discussion, we you know, uphold and, and improve our deterrence of defense capabilities. And then that gets into the whole reassurance of our allies uh, issue. Um, what does our approach uh, need to be and how is this administration uh, doing? Uh, and what are the things that we know work with them, uh, right? I mean, is it quiet actions like the Michigan port visit? Uh, is it other things that have a tendency of actually registering with them? The, the things we know that they respond to? Well, you know, things have changed over the years. Sometimes things were successful until they weren't, uh, or they were failures until they weren't. So, you know, having followed North Korea for about 30 years now, uh, you know, it, it, it leads to a bit of cynicism because, you know, especially when, when newer folks come in and say, we need to try something new because all of this old stuff hasn't worked. We need to do X, Y, and Z, of which I am the only one who has thought of. It's like, yeah, I remember when that was new in 1993 and 2005 and 2009, et cetera. So we really have tried everything, um, you know, and successive, successive U.S. administrations of both political parties have, have failed in, in different approaches. So, you know, oftentimes the, the debate amongst Korea watchers devolve to a, a binary, you know, more pressure or more diplomacy. And, and obviously the real answer is you need a comprehensive integrated strategy utilizing all the instruments of national power. Um, but by having this sort of binary, more pressure, you know, more sanctions, uh, what happened is people would say, look, we, we should try to reach out to them. We should offer them various concessions. We have done all of those and more. Uh, and they didn't work, or they only worked for a little while as North Korea covertly maintained its program. So you know, what we're left with is trying negotiations. Uh, you know, all of us, I think, can point to lessons learned and how we should do a, a new treaty if we ever get to one in a better way than previous ones. But when they refuse to come to the phone, uh, let, alone, let alone the table, right. then you're, you're left with, you know, maintaining and improving your defenses and your deterrence, as well as enforcing your own laws against criminal behavior and UN resolutions. Um, let me just uh, have a quick word from uh, one of our sponsors. City National Bank offers the best of both worlds. Their clients benefit from personalized attention and flexible solutions without sacrificing access to the global scale support and resources needed to grow in the aerospace and defense industry. Your success is their business. Learn more at cnb.com forward slash aerospace dash defense. Let me take you to uh, the notion of engagement uh, for uh, its own uh, sake. This is kind of a very Washington tendency. It, it is exists both in Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, this administration has been uh, quietly, uh, both publicly and privately pushing uh, in order to have a dialogue, right? The sense that it's, you know, even with your worst adversary, it's good to have some form of channel of communication, which the North Koreans, as you pointed out, turned off in uh, 2019. We're now seeing glimmers of communication uh, after the defection to North Korea of uh, Army Private Travis King. Um, what is the point of this dialogue ultimately 
with the North Koreans because the nature of whatever dialogue is radically different than with any other country, period. Right. Well, it, it serves a number of purposes. Uh, you know, perhaps at the most tactical right now would, would be with, with Travis King would be just trying to get North Korea to, to respond of, you know, is he safe? What are his intentions? Uh, what are your intentions vis-a-vis -vis him, et cetera? Um, you know, we would like to talk to him and make sure he's not being coerced, et cetera. Um, but I think that's going to be done at a very tactical level, whether it's in the joint security area or, or through some channels. Some had hoped this would lead to kind of a, a breakthrough at the strategic level, a resumption of the high level dialogue, including at the leadership level that we saw in 2018. I, I don't think it's going to lead to that. Um, but there, you know, we would want to have talks. You know, ultimately, we would love a successful denuclearization accord or a, on nuclear weapons, perhaps an arms control or a series of smaller incremental um, agreements. But even short of that, it would be useful to have conversations about risk reduction, uh, confidence and security building measures that would you know, reduce the potential that either side thought the other was about to attack. So the, the two Koreas had a comprehensive military agreement, I think it was 2018, which it was overhyped by the South Korean government because in the history of warfare, minefields and concrete guard posts have never attacked another nation. But it, it did sort of set the, the level for perhaps additional confidence security building measures. And then given North Korean behavior, it, it, it fizzled. But, you know, I was part of negotiations with the Soviet Union on not only arm, conventional arms reduction, but also the, the Vienna Protocol of confidence security building measures. So there'd be ways of uh, you know, introducing transparency measures, notification measures, so that neither side felt that you know, ongoing military activity was a precursor to an invasion or an attack. That would be useful for all of us. And, and the U.S. has said we are interested in those kind of talks, even short of discussing nuclear weapons. But uh, North Korea has rejected that. So we have indicated not only what seems to be boilerplate language of we'll meet you anywhere, anytime, but have said specifically it's you know, we're willing to talk about risk thing, risk measures so that North Korea doesn't misperceive military exercises by the allies as something that is a precursor to an attack on them. And then North Korea feels it has to preempt our preemption. Uh, I, I find it uh, ridiculous that these exercises are announced clear. We say what they are, and then the North Koreans kind of respond to sort of the sort of absurdist way that they respond to it each time as if, you know, we're, we're kind of on a, uh, a hair trigger, right? I mean, at this point, I think everybody ought to understand the ritualized nature uh, of our relationship and, and the sort of outrageous behavior that, that they tend uh, to exhibit. Um, we have a tendency, Bruce, of, of treating, whether it's China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, in, in their own silos, but increasingly, they're in cahoots. Uh, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and Chinese Politburo member Li um, uh, Hongzhong uh, are going to be attending the Victory Day Parade in Pyongyang uh, on uh, Thursday to commemorate the end of the Korean War. China keeps North Korea afloat by violating United Nations sanctions on a daily basis. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not supposed to go there that's getting there. Uh, Russia is certainly, its hands are certainly involved in the, uh, the both the nuclear program, but clearly the rocket programs. 
uh, same with China. And you can see that the North Koreans have been instrumental, uh, not just in uh, Iran uh, and Iran's programs, uh, but also the North Koreans are helping now the Russians with ammunition and even advisors, uh, although it's unclear what those advisors are, are doing in, in Ukraine, except maybe learning lessons that try to improve the North Korean military. Some have argued we need kind of a more holistic approach to these four. What is the holistic approach that we need? Because invariably, we kind of talk our way out of doing anything that actually would be in our longer term strategic interest of looking at these four as problematic together, uh, even more problematic when they're together. Right. Well, it's sort of within government, there are bureaucracies, and oftentimes they're divided either geographically or, or functionally. So just at an analyst level, it could be you have a, a rocket expert who covers rockets worldwide, whereas you then have a, a North Korea expert who just focuses on that country. And sort of it's been difficult sometimes to, to marry the two, uh, two together. And even in military commands, you see sort of a division between you know, you draw a line on the on the globe, and one U.S. military command focuses on one country, and one focuses on the other. Even though in the real world, countries straddle those those geographic lines, um, you know. But that does raise the issue of sort of how much of the activity is done uh, as part of a bad guy combined strategy. So, you know, some kind of have this image that you know, almost like the. Uh, in a James Bond film, when Spectre gets together and all the evil people, you know, come up with the the grand plan, you know, I don't think it's that that well strategized. But it it can be. There's coordination, or there's certainly looking at what the other country is doing, and perhaps taking advantage of uh, the U.S. or others being distracted at the time by Ukraine or the fear of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, et cetera. Um, so, you know, some have have thought that China must control North Korea, tells it what to do. When China says jump, North Korea says how high. And, and that really is not the case. Um, you know, 5,000 years of Korean history, the, the hatred of China, and, and we would see very negative comments by both the Chinese and North Korean leadership against the other. So, um, and even the, the North Korean nuclear program started because they felt they couldn't trust either their Soviet or Chinese allies. Uh, Beijing, or Pyongyang thought that the Moscow sold out Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and therefore North Korea needed its own nuclear weapons program. When China didn't share data from the 1964 nuclear test, that just reassured it or reaffirmed it in North Korea's mind that they couldn't even trust the Chinese. So really the, the nuclear and missile programs of North Korea are largely indigenous, but that said, they do get expertise or technology or components from around the world. Um, but it's not that either Moscow or Beijing has said, hey, here's here's a nuclear weapon, you know, just go and, and produce more of them. So um I and I think in many ways China doesn't like the the behavior that North Korea is doing, it's it's raising the potential for a crisis on Chinese borders. Uh, but that said, Beijing certainly doesn't want to apply the pressure on North Korea that the U.S. and others would want because they fear either an explosion or an implosion in North Korea. Um, I, I want to get uh, to the leadership question uh, in a minute, but one of the, the United States even it was we're seeing in in the whole uh, uh, Russo-Ukrainian war, um, the the United States has sort of an unwillingness to pressure its allies and partners um, 
to cut off uh, the Russians, for example, right? I mean, the Indians continue to do robust trade. Uh, the, you know, it's increasingly clear the Chinese are actually sending very useful equipment to the Russians, including body armor and personal equipment, and even, even maybe some small caliber ammunition. Uh, you know, but we don't want to sort of engage in that. Our Gulf uh, partners uh, also are violating financial sanctions and, and what have you. Are, are we really being serious if we're willing, unwilling to apply the kind of pressure necessary on the Chinese and organizing people, for example, to do that? Are we just sort of not serious then about the threat, which is fine, right? It, and, it, and, and maybe it's honest. It, maybe then it's more honest to say we're, we're actually not too serious about some of these threats. Right. It, and you may sort of see it as a, as a spectrum. On the, on the one hand, a, a highly principled policy would be uh, any country that we don't like for any reason, we cut off all economic engagement, any, you know, U.S. tourism or whatever to that country. And, and that, that's not practical, even with, you know, the Soviet Union or Russia or China, you know, and the other extreme would be just sort of sheer accommodation or even appeasement of, well, I know they're doing bad things, but I, you know, either I'm making money by engaging with, with that evil regime, or I, my economy is, you know, so dependent on trade with it, I can't allow my principles to get in the way. So those would be sort of the two extremes. And, and I think different countries and even different leaders struggle with it. So for example, you know, I, I feel that South Korea, regardless of whether it's a conservative or progressive president, should call out North Korea for its human rights violations, its activities, its violations, um, and, and deal with it on that basis, try to engage with them. But any kind of economic benefits to the North would be conditioned on progress on reducing tensions, reducing risk, or progress towards denuclearization. Um, and then with the same with China's, you know, we are so engaged with them economically, we can't just totally disengage overnight, but we can try to find alternative trade partners, uh, more supply chain guarantee, et cetera. And I think we've seen that collectively since COVID where a lot of countries realized how dependent they were on China uh, and are trying to move away from that, but it takes time. So, you know, I would like South Korea to be more, um, you know, direct in their criticism of China. Um, you know, Japan and Australia will not only criticize Chinese actions, but will identify Beijing as the perpetrator. South Korea, even under the, the current uh, conservative president, Yun suk yeol uh, will criticize Chinese actions, but then not identify Beijing as the perpetrator. So, you know, I would like them to do more on that. I would like them to provide direct lethal aid to Ukraine rather than indirectly through Poland or the United States, but um, you know, South Korea would say we we can't anger the Chinese dragon too much because they will retaliate economically. And my response to that is, well, then that shows you are in an abusive relationship, and why you should continue to try to diversify away from China. Um, do we know uh, back uh, to the regime uh, itself, uh, right? For many. You know, uh, Kim was supposed to be, um, oh, this Kim uh, was supposed to be a little bit more Western in his outlook, right? Went to school in Switzerland, you know, apparently had some uh, very Western uh, friends, had lived outside the hermit uh, kingdom, uh, then, you know, took 
power and it was completely different ball game, uh, a lot like Bashar al-Assad, right? You, you, you could have studied optometry in the United Kingdom and, and still be a first order uh, dictator. Um, does, what, what do we know about the regime and its mechanics, the rise of Kim's sister, and now all of a sudden Kim's bizarre promotion of his 14-year-old daughter, clearly showing this is going to be a family franchise uh, operation, right? What do we know about the sort of internal mechanics and dynamics because Kim was supposed to be sick for a while, why he lost weight, right? I mean, we, we have all of these theories, but then again, you know, Vladimir Putin's been living on a banana peel as well for the last 20 years and he, you know, or 15 years, and he seems to be <laughs> perfectly fine. What, what is it we know about what's going on inside that suggests to us how they will behave externally? Right. Well, we, you know, I remember back in 1993-94 when some people, including in the U.S. government, were saying that Kim Jong-il was a bold economic reformer and North Korea was on the cusp of implementing massive economic reform. Well, obviously that didn't come to pass. So when people were saying that Kim Jong-un uh, was going to be a reformer because he you know, lived in Switzerland for a few years, you know, as, as you just did, I pointed out, well, there were a number of dictators of Syria, Haiti, otherwise... Uh, other countries that you know, were educated in the West and still acted as badly as they, they subsequently did. So um, it, the fact that we're still debating whether there's economic reform in North Korea 30 years after I first entered the fray, to me, kind of shows that it, it's limited and it's really the capitalism that's allowed by the regime is in order to keep the socialist system afloat. Um, so I don't put a lot of, of stock in that, you know, Kim was going to be or is a, a reformer, certainly not politically and only on the fringes economically. Uh, he has shown himself to be as brutal, if not more brutal than his father and his grandfather. So the, the system continues its policies regardless of which generation of Kim it is. So right now, you know, we, we have the occasional debate of is Kim sick? Is he dead? And and a couple of years ago, there was uh, he was absent from view for, I think, six weeks. And so there were a lot of uh, media interviews. And, you know, the old timers would say, we don't know. We, we don't know if he's right. dead. We don't know if he's sick. We don't know if he's healthy. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. You know, back when Kim Jong-il died, the CIA didn't know for two or three days whether he was dead. And that was only because uh, North Korea announced it. And then Kim came back looking more fit than ever and now is since deteriorated. So um, it really, it's we deal with the leader we have in front of the curtain today. So it's Kim Jong-un, uh, his policies we know, and you know, he is the leader. If he were to you know, kick the bucket suddenly, I think at this point, the sister would likely take over. You know, we don't know. There's no succession plan in the Constitution or, or announced. Um, and we don't know what, uh, you know, Prior, uh, what you know, things would lead to whoever finally gets the ring of power. Um, but I think right now his sister seems to be the second most powerful person. He trusts her. Uh, she has certainly, you know, been on her own announcing North, uh, North Korean policy. Um, and and so if he were to die today, then I think she would be, you know, the person. If you know, Kim lives another 20, 30 years, he may be grooming the daughter for yet another generational transfer of power. 
Now, in the meantime, the sister and, and the mother of the daughter may be feuding, and we've seen reports of that, of each one trying to right. kind of gain the inner track to being the successor. Um, so that's all a bit of you know Game of Thrones, you know, behind the curtain intrigue. But uh, you know, the way I see it is you deal with the leader you have today, and if it's a different leader tomorrow, well, then you deal with that one. But there's no indication there's going to be any change in policy, regardless of what member of the Kim family or some other person, uh, you know, eventually becomes the next leader. We've got uh, about two minutes uh, left. Really quickly, how is it we need to be thinking about this threat three years from now, five years from now, right? Is the past 70 years an indicator of where this goes, where constant provocation threat, but never really fully matures into crisis? How do we need to be thinking about it? And I have one follow-up question. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be that. You know, we've tried many different things. That doesn't mean we don't keep trying them, hoping for for changes. But uh, you know, the Soviet Union was a long-term problem. We tried solving it, and and until it collapsed, you know, we didn't. Um, so I think with North Korea, it's we continue to try to have dialogue on a range of issues, but you know, we need to maintain the this sword and the shield to defend ourselves as well as our allies in the meantime. Uh, and uh, last question, in war game after war game, Bruce, um, you know, in any crisis involving the United States, China, uh, or, or I should say China, the United States and its allies, whether over Taiwan or the Philippines or anything else, South Korea has a tendency not just of sitting it out, uh, but also requiring the United States to maintain all of its troops and equipment and everything else. And in, indeed, I've been in some of these scenarios where they've asked for more capability from the United States, uh, you know, in order to deter the North Koreans. And there's, I think, more than a passing fear that the North Koreans will precipitate something at the time the Chinese are doing something in order to stress and, and, and strain us. Does, does that change how we should, you know, South Korea is a very important ally and partner, but does that change how it is we need to be thinking about our alliance and partnership with the South Koreans? where in the event of a very big scrape, they will be interested in protecting themselves as opposed to playing a somewhat more active role more broadly in, in support of the United States in support of Japan and, and the like? Or is the tripartite agreement among the United States, Japan, and South Korea changing that dynamic, you think, over time? We've seen a lot of focus on Taiwan scenarios uh, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it, what we saw in, in Japan when they you know, announced doubling their defense budget, strike capabilities, et cetera, which normally would have led to massive public protests. Instead, it was some very strong public support. And what Japanese officials said, it was the invasion of Ukraine, which caused the Japanese public to reverse its resistance to playing a larger security role. It, it, we've seen less of that in South Korea. Uh, indeed, when, when people go to South Korea to try to talk about Taiwan scenarios, they have trouble getting meetings. Um, so while Japan has been much more focal about, vocal about what they may do in a Taiwan scenario, uh, South Korea really doesn't want to talk about it. And both the current and previous commander, the U.S. commander in Korea, were chastised when they mentioned that, yeah, we think Korea would play a role in a Taiwan scenario. So uh, I hope that there's discussions between the militaries going on behind the scenes, uh, but clearly South Korea would focus on a very existential threat just across their border, and they would say we can't get too involved in a Taiwan scenario 
uh, to the degree that Japan may be because they're further away and they also have a very real threat to their border. So I think we'd be looking to Korea to play a combat support role as U.S. forces perhaps didn't leave the peninsula itself, but a lot of the forces in Okinawa and Japan that would respond to a Korean crisis are also designated for a Taiwan crisis. So Korea would be assuming a larger uh, portion of the responsibility for defending against North Korea if the U.S. got involved in a Taiwan scenario. You know, we've we've gone uh, long uh, on this conversation in part because there's been so much to discuss. But let me just brief you ask, uh, briefly ask you about whether extended deterrence is going to work or do the Japanese and the South Koreans basically go nuclear at some point, right? That they just decide as much as and, and, the, and the Japanese got very close to that and the North Koreans have done work. Uh, excuse me, the South Koreans have done work on this as well. So it's not like these two sophisticated countries with vibrant nuclear industries and an ability to launch stuff into space wouldn't be able to do it. But what's your sense on extended deterrence and at what point those two go nuclear? The question about the viability of the U.S. extended deterrence guarantee has gone mainstream in in South Korea in the last year or so. Uh, There has always been fringe advocates for returning U.S. nukes to the peninsula or South Korea developing its own program, but that was dismissed easily. But the last year or so, it really has come to the forefront uh, in part because of several misstatements uh, by President Yun, where he said, you know, we may need to consider nuclear options. And then he or his officials quickly walked those back. Uh, that led to a great concern in, in Washington and uh, being much more transparent, much more forthcoming in our nuclear strategy with South Korea. And then, as we saw in the April summit between Biden and Yuan, the Washington Declaration, the creation of a nuclear consultative group. So right now, uh, the push for an indigenous program has been deflated in South Korea, but it depends on how successful U.S. efforts at reassurance are in the next six months or so, as well as whatever North Korea does. So it's an issue uh, that is is very important. It's out of the news for now, but we will see if it comes back. Bruce, always an honor and pleasure uh, talking to you. Uh, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Looking forward to having you join us more regularly uh, for these updates. It's been too long. Uh, thanks very much again. Well, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it.